Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Life Together, First Church of the Nazarene. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. And I feel like I need to address this really quickly. So, um, yeah, there we go. So, uh, last week, uh, this is not the same shirt that I wore last week. That's the first thing I want to address. Um, and I have, to t- I have to tell you, though, it was very, very, very tempting to wear that shirt again because I wore it, and Michigan is going to the Final Four. So, in the, in the immortal words of Michael Scott, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious, right? So, uh, it, it, it took quite a bit for me not to wear that same shirt again today. But anyways, glad we got that out of the way. So, uh, for the past four weeks, uh, we have been taking a journey together through a series that we've titled peculiar. And along the way, we've been unpacking Jesus' statement that the kingdom of heaven has begun to overlap with our world, and that ultimately the story that he is writing ends with heaven and earth being one and the same again. And in light of that future, then, the question to ponder these last few weeks has been this, what if heaven is not a destination to await, but a reality to pursue? In these past two weeks, what we've done is we've taken a look at two very specific ways that we can pursue this idea of heaven on earth. In week two, we considered what peculiar justice looks like. And in week three, we considered peculiar compassion. And if you've missed any of those messages, I would encourage you, go back. Uh, You can can listen to them on our church website or our church podcast. Today, we're going to bring things full stop, and we're going to be looking at the king of this peculiar kingdom. It is Palm Sunday, the day we celebrate uh, his triumphal entry. So we're going to be looking at this king. Who is he? How did he live? And what does that mean for us? We're going to take a quick journey through the life of Jesus um, by touching on some of the highlights of his life. And I think that by the time that we get to the end of this, that we're going to see that this king of heaven was a very different type of king than people expected. We're going to start with a scene that takes place actually preceding his birth. Uh, Matthew tells it this way. It should be on the screen. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The angel tells Joseph to name the child Jesus. And what's interesting about this uh, is that something kind of gets lost in translation here. The Hebrew name that the angel says to give Jesus is Yeshua. Maybe you've heard that, Yeshua. And you say, why is that interesting? I'm glad you asked. Um, first, it's important to note that uh, we translate Yeshua in English two different ways, both Jesus and Joshua. In other words, Jesus and Joshua are both English translations of the same Hebrew name, Yeshua. The name Yeshua itself uh, derives from a word meaning to rescue or to deliver, and the name itself actually means the Lord is salvation. Now that's a pretty strong message in and of itself. If, if the angel is telling uh, Joseph to name the child Jesus, the Lord is salvation, we could probably be, con- be content with that, but there's more to it. Because you see, the name Yeshua carried with it some pretty significant historical weight. The first place in the biblical history of Israel that we see this name Yeshua show up is when we are introduced to Joshua, son of Nun, uh, in the Old Testament. You may have heard of Joshua. He's got an entire book named after him. Um, Why was this Joshua famous? You see, Joshua, Joshua was the Israelite leader who followed after Moses. 
So Moses led the Israelite people out of slavery and right up to the edge of the, God, the land that God had promised them. But Joshua, Yeshua, took them from there and led them into the land of Canaan that God had promised them. And the pages that tell that story are just drenched in blood. They are brutally violent. They're some of the most difficult pages in the Bible to read. Battle after battle is won by the Israelites as they systematically destroyed and drove out, mostly at least, uh, the, the people living in the land of Canaan so that they could take it as God promised. And Joshua was the one who led them through that all. Conquest after conquest, battle after battle, Joshua was the guy leading the charge as Israel took hold of its inheritance. He was a mighty warrior. He was a great military leader. And that made him a revered figure in Jewish history. So when Matthew records the angel appearing to Joseph to tell him that he is, that his fiance is going to have a baby and he needs to keep both of them and that they are to name him Yeshua, there's something going on here. There are connotations with that name. Immediately the mind goes to Joshua, the son of Nun from the Old Testament. Yeshua, the name of the mighty conqueror, the mighty deliverer. Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. This kid is going to be special. Maybe even a great military leader. The angel continues, though, explaining why, um, why Joseph's son is to be named Yeshua. He says, you are to give him the name Yeshua because he will save his people. Now, stop right there for just, just a moment. What is Jesus going to save his people, the Jewish people, from? From whom do they need saving? From whom do they need rescue or deliverance? I imagine that Joseph probably just kind of mentally cut the, the angel off at that point and thought, say no more, say no more. I know exactly who we're being saved from. Rome, of course, because Rome was the power of the day. Rome's presence was felt everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere without running into a Roman guard who was to be the reminder of who is really in charge. The gospel of the day was Pax Romana, Roman peace. The creed of the day was Caesar is Lord. If Jews needed deliverance from anyone, it was Rome. But that's not what the angel says. The angel says to name him Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. we got a plot twist already, and he's not even alive yet. Before Jesus is even born, he's beginning to upend the expectations of who this Messiah would be. While everyone is hoping that this Messiah would liberate his people from Rome, perhaps Jesus will have his sights set on a different enemy entirely. Well, to find out, we need to keep moving through this story. So we're going to fast forward about 30 years. And this time, Jesus, we find Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown. And the story comes from Luke 4. It immediately follows the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. And so in Luke's mind, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And here's how Luke tells it. Jesus comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah to be read. And Jesus begins to read from what we refer to as Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. So here's how the rest of the story plays out. It should be on the screen. Jesus reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him, and he began by saying to them, Today... The scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Luke is an extremely detailed author. He's writing this investigative account of this life of this man, Jesus, uh, for somebody else. And so details are not wasted in Luke. When he says that Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, 
When he says that all the eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fastened on him, there's a reason. You see, if you go back and you read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, you'll notice something. And that is that Jesus quotes it very closely along the way. But he literally stops mid-sentence and rolls up the scroll. You see, Isaiah writes in poetic form. If you've ever read the Psalms, you've noticed this, right? That is, the, the way that Hebrew poetry worked is there would be uh, what we call a couplet, two lines that were connected to one another by form or by meaning. And if you read Psalms, you'll notice the second line is always indented, right? That's to show that these two lines together are a couplet. And so if you read the original verse that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, you'll see that the first line, the first line of the couplet is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus stops, abruptly. Mid-verse, without reading the second line of the couplet, he leaves everyone hanging. If you go and you read the second line that he, uh, of the verse that he's quoting from Isaiah, you will see that the second line is, and the day of the vengeance of our God. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Interestingly enough, Jesus leaves the part about vengeance off. It's jarring. It catches people off guard. And then he seizes that moment. He's got everybody's attention, and he declares that he is the one who will usher in the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he says. An incredibly bold claim in and of itself, but even more so when you realize that he kind of left part of the scripture out apparently on purpose. Why would he do that? Is it possible that he's trying to give people clues to what his ministry was going to look like? what kind of Messiah he would be, all the freedom, all the healing, all the good news, none of the vengeance? Who is this Yeshua? He's claiming Messiahship, but he's already messing with people's expectations of what that's supposed to be, upending them. Well, if we fast forward three more years, we find Jesus nearing kind of the, the climax, the crescendo of his ministry. He spent the last few years preaching love and heart-level holiness. He's taken some jabs at Rome along the way, and he's gathered quite a following. And people are getting excited. They're beginning to believe this might be it. The long-awaited Messiah who would restore Israel to greatness, rescuing us from under the thumb of the Roman Empire. That's what people needed in the Messiah. People needed hope in the midst of Roman occupation. So there's this growing excitement as Jesus approaches Jerusalem for the third and final time during his ministry. He's headed to Jerusalem just as the preparations for Passover are beginning. And what is Passover a celebration of? It's a celebration of the liberation of Jewish people from an oppressive empire. Could this Yeshua be the one to drive Rome out of Palestine, just like Old Testament Yeshua drove the Canaanites out of the Promised Land? There's a feeling that this is it. God is going to deliver us, to rescue us. Yeshua is king, and he is going to lead us. Hosanna. And so Jesus approaches Jerusalem to make his triumphal entry with the crowds in tow. And as he gets close, he makes an odd request. He requests a donkey, which, if you ask me, is kind of a weird war horse, uh, but I guess in a pinch it would have to do. Or maybe something else is happening here. Is Jesus once again upending expectations. To understand what's happening, we have to look back at a passage from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, the prophet spends the first eight verses describing this conquering king who we would later come to know as Alexander the Great. And Alexander conquers, and he expands with his white war horse and his gleaming sword, and he has this enormous Greek territory. 
But then verse 9 and 10 roll around, and the prophet says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah tells us about this king riding on a donkey, bringing salvation and peace to rule the ends of the earth. You think Jesus knew what he was doing here? There is definitely a coronation ceremony that is taking place, but it is a very peculiar coronation. A man on a donkey, without an army, without a weapon, and a mass of thousands of people just crushing around him, crying out, Hosanna, save us now, deliver us now. They wanted deliverance. The reality is that the Jewish people understood who Jesus was. They were convinced that he was the Messiah. They just didn't understand the nature of his Messiahship. They knew he was a king. They just didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. A kingdom of peace, not war. A kingdom built on humility, not pride or entitlement. A kingdom rooted in love. Jesus may have been a king at war, but he's fighting a very different enemy and using an entirely different strategy. Fast forward a few more days, and, and Jesus has already started to wear out his welcome. Um, instead of pushing around the Roman authorities, uh, instead he's, he's reprimanding the Jewish leaders. And it's the Jewish temple that he's disrupting. Not exactly a, a great start for a new king. He seems to be fighting the wrong enemy. And within days, the Jewish leaders are conspiring uh, to have Jesus murdered. Now, if you're the Jewish leaders and you want to prove that this guy is definitely, definitively not the Messiah, the best way to make that happen is for Rome to be the ones that kill him. Because if, if Rome kills him, Rome just wins again. Clearly, this Jesus was not the Messiah. And so they set the events in motion, and Jesus knows what's happening, and that, that becomes the backdrop for our next scene. We come to the evening of Passover, and Jesus is celebrating the ancient tradition of Passover uh, with his disciples. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to the Roman authorities, and he knows who is going to betray him. And yet he still has his mind this whole time set on humility and love. He kicks off his last meal with his friends by taking on the form of, lo of the lowliest servant and washing their feet, including the feet of Judas, his betrayer, including the feet of Peter, who will disown him. John tells it this way. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. 
for he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said, all of you are clean. One of the most humbling acts imaginable, washing someone's feet, an act that was reserved for only the lowest of the lowest of the slaves of that day. And this is what we find Jesus doing just a few days removed from his coronation. Can you imagine Pharaoh or Caesar doing something like this? Certainly not, because it's not befitting of a king. But Jesus is a different kind of king, a peculiar king. Even as he stares betrayal and death in the face, he remains true to the pillars of his peculiar kingdom. He never chooses to fight. He never gives up on humility. He never gives up on love. And eventually, it cost him his life as he is crucified on a Roman cross for all to see. And the air goes out of the Jewish people as they think, well, I guess we bet on the wrong horse. He showed so much promise, but Rome wins again. Back to life as usual. Guess he wasn't the Messiah after all. Or maybe, maybe he was the Messiah but wanted people to understand that he was fighting a different war and a different enemy using a different approach. For our last scene, we're going to fast forward all the way, one more time, uh, all the way up to Revelation chapter 5. At this point, Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. He's ascended to heaven with a promise to return again. And in the meantime, the early church, they're still struggling with Rome. And so John gives, or God gives John the Revelator a vision of hope for the churches that are suffering under the thumb of Rome. And in Revelation, John records that incredible grand vision. And so as Revelation chapter 5 begins, John sees at the right hand of him who sits on the throne, he's looking at a throne, God the Father is on the throne, and he, he sees in the right hand of God a scroll. And an angel asks, who is worthy to open the seals of the scroll? And John says, no one in heaven was found who was worthy. So he begins to weep. As Pastor Sharon would say, he went, he went full ugly cry uh, because no one could open the scroll. But then one of the elders says to him, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And here something incredible happens. It's like a political cartoon. You have to pay attention to the symbols or you will miss it. The elder tells John that the Lion of Judah has triumphed. He can open it. But when John turns around, what does he see? Verse 5 says, Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. What does he see? I'll tell you what he doesn't see. He doesn't see what the elder told him he would see. He doesn't see what he is expecting to see, a lion, a fearsome, mighty conqueror, a warrior. Instead, what he does see is a slaughtered lamb. A lamb which clearly has been killed, and a lamb which somehow is still worthy and victorious, regardless of the fact that he has apparently been defeated. Do you know that this is the only place in all of Scripture that Jesus is, where Jesus is referred to as the Lion of Judah? You can fact check me on it if you want, but the only time that the Lion of Judah is ever mentioned like this is in this verse. And the whole point is to illustrate that Jesus isn't actually the Lion, but he is the Lamb. You see, the Lion was the symbol of the Israelite tribe of Judah. It comes out of Jacob's blessings to his sons in Genesis 49. And so it's the symbol that came to, uh, to kind of personify them 
uh, their banners, their flags, they would have had this lion on that. And Jesus came from the lineage of Judah, but that is where the lion imagery ceases. The elders tell John to look for the lion of the tribe of Judah, but John never sees a lion. He sees a lamb, the slain lamb. And don't miss this. This, this isn't something to be glossed over. Jesus is king, and Jesus is victorious, and his victory as king was not won like a lion, but like a slaughtered lamb. His defeat of evil came not through slaying evil, but allowing evil to slay him, and in so doing, proving that even the evil's greatest weapon, death, has no power over his loving, self-sacrificial kingship. And so skipping down to verse 9, we, we get to hear what the elders have to say about this lamb. They say, you are worthy to take the scroll and break it, break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. Jesus' blood has ransomed for God people from every tribe, every nation, every people and language, and they will reign with him on earth. Jesus certainly did overthrow a kingdom, an empire, but it wasn't Rome. It was so much bigger than that. Jesus was the Messiah. He was just a very different Messiah than what people expected, a peculiar Messiah. He defeated all of sin, all of death, all of darkness, and ransomed humanity from the grips on be, on, from its grips on behalf of God. The battle against darkness isn't won through military might or through violence. It's won through a love that led the Lamb to willingly give his life. To his death, Jesus never gave up on love. He never gave up on humility, never once. He conquered through humility. His victory was through love. That's the peculiar king that we serve. That's the peculiar way of life into which we are called. We are invited to believe and to live like humility and love can, did, and will conquer even the greatest evil. So I want us just for a moment to return to the scene of the night of Jesus' betrayal. After he finishes washing their feet, he stands up and he gets dressed and he says to them this. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We see in Jesus a very different kind of king. His kingdom has different rules. In his kingdom, the last are first. In his kingdom, the king washes the feet of his subjects. In his kingdom, victory isn't won through violence or military of might, but through humility. And in his kingdom, the defeat of evil does not come through a battlefield of spilled blood, but instead through a cross stained with the king's own blood. Our king is a humble slain lamb, and our king is love. And I have to wonder, I have to wonder if sometimes Jesus is still in heaven, in heaven, asking the same question of us today that he asked of the disciples all those years ago. Do you understand what I've done for you? Are you getting it? Was my example clear enough for you? Humility and love, those are the hallmarks of our king. Not a lion, but a slaughtered lamb. Not a conquering warrior, but a conquering lover. 
a king obedient to the ideals of his kingdom to the bitter end and still to this day. The author of Hebrew reminds us that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. In other words, Jesus still hasn't given up on love as the way. So neither should we. If we are the people who have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light, into this already but not yet peculiar kingdom of heaven, to pursue the reality of heaven on earth, then humility and love need to be our motto, our mission, our purpose. Because that's who Jesus is. That's how Jesus responds. That's how he leads. That's how he reigns. And so in light of those truths, I want to just one more time present you with a question. It's a question for life. It's a question to dictate our lives. It's a, it's a question to serve as our guide. That's similar to last week's question. It's even easier to remember, though. You've probably heard it before. But I wonder if in light of these stories, if maybe, maybe it would have different meaning. Maybe these vignettes of the life of Jesus have given us a different understanding of how we would answer this question. And in, an, in, in, every, ooh, in any and every situation, as we seek to live out God's story in our community, may we be asking ourselves very simply, what would Jesus do? The Jesus that reigns in love and humility. What would Jesus do in this situation with my boss? What would Jesus do in this situation with my spouse, with my kids? What would Jesus do in this situation with my friend or my family member? What would Jesus do with my finances? What would Jesus do when circumstances just aren't fair? What would Jesus do with our current political climate? What would Jesus do in the face of injustice and inequality? What would Jesus do for the Jesus looking back at him? What do humility and love look like here? What would Jesus do? God's story through Jesus Christ is a story of restoration of his creation through humility and love. That's the story he modeled. That's the story we're called to live in. And we say it this way here at Kankakee First. We say that we exist to live out God's story in our community. If we can learn to be a people who operate from the outlook, which asks, what would Jesus do here? I believe that we will see pockets of heaven on earth popping up all around us. That we will be the peculiar people that our peculiar king has called us to be. That we will be seeking his peculiar kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that we will write God's story all over our community. What would Jesus do? I'm going to pray in just a moment to close this out. Um, but there may be some of you here today who hear about this king and you are intrigued. Maybe this isn't the Jesus you've been told about. Maybe the God you've been told about all along is a vindictive, angry God, just bent on punishment. And yet you hear about this Jesus, this king of kings, and you, who, who rules through love, who rules through humility, and you think, that's a king I can trust. There's a king I can follow a king who washes feet, a king who forgives while he hangs on a cross, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if that's you today, here's what I would say to you. Jesus invites you to follow him. That's an invitation for everybody. He invites you to follow him. He claims to be the way and the truth and the life, and he said that he came to give life and give it abundantly. And so if it's life you seek, Jesus is the way. And so I'm going to pray in a moment. And if you are here and you feel like today is the day for you to say yes to Jesus, to accept his unconditional forgiveness in your life, 
to believe that when he rose from the dead that he defeated all of evil's power over you and to receive the life that he promised to those who love him, I would encourage you to take your first step forward today. And so while I pray, I'll ask you to pray, to tell Jesus that you, love, that you trust him, to tell Jesus that you accept that love and forgiveness, to tell him that you want his life, to tell him that you will follow him and never turn back. And after we dismiss, I would encourage you uh, to find one of the pastors down front here because we would love to connect you with some resources and some people to go with you along in the journey. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your life. We thank you for the stories that we have in Scripture of who you are. We thank you for this, this kingdom that you tried to, tried to tell us about, that you tried to live out for us, that you showed us a way that is different than what we know. Jesus, we want to live into that reality. We're aware, we're especially aware in this, in this, this season right now, the church calendar, as we lead up to the, the events of this weekend, to the events of Good Friday, to the events of Easter Sunday, we are aware uh, that we fall short of that ideal quite often. Jesus, I, first of all, for myself, I ask that you would forgive me for the ways in which I have failed to operate out of love, the ways that I have failed to seek humility first. And on behalf of everyone in this room, Jesus, I ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have failed to live into your kingdom. And yet we know that you are a gracious God. We know that you are a forgiving God. We know that you have removed all shame and guilt, and so we don't have to live in that shame and guilt anymore. Instead, your spirit, and spirit we pray, that you would refill those places that were once filled with shame and guilt with your spirit, that you would lead and guide us, that you would empower us anew to be people who live out your story in our community. That's, what, that's who we want to be. That's who we want to be. And Jesus, I'm aware, I'm aware that there are probably here people today who you are drawing to yourself. Who, you, who are stepping into your family for the first time today, who are accepting and understanding your grace in their lives for the first time ever. And I am so thankful for that, and I just pray that you would continue to pour your love out over them. That you would surround them with people who can live the journey of life with them, who can model the way for them. Jesus, we are just thankful again for the opportunity to gather together, to do life together in your name. And so we ask, as we get ready to leave this place, would you empower us? Would you transform us to be people who live like you lived, who live out of love, who live out your story in our community? And may our community never be the same because of that. We pray all these things in your holy name, giving you the, war, the, the honor and the glory as the elders in Revelation did because you alone are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.